Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Isha Desai. Our guest today, Dr. Stephen Costlin, spent decades teaching and doing research at two of the leading universities in the U.S., Harvard and Stanford, and was involved in creating Minerva University and Foundry College. He's also president of Active Learning Sciences and is widely recognized as one of the world's leading researchers on the science of learning. We're going to explore active learning and the application of it to online education with him today. Thanks for taking the time to join us, Dr. Coslin. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest. I'd like to first start out with learning a little bit more about you. What got you first interested in education and learning science? It was actually when I was a high school student, believe it or not, which was in the 60s. And, you know, like many high school students, I was just becoming socially aware of what was going on around me more generally. And decided that the world had many flaws and that the ultimate way to address those flaws was really going to have to involve education. So as a high school student, I was already really oriented towards the idea that education was something that needed to be fixed and it could be done a lot better, but I didn't know how. Then when I was in grad school, I became a developmental psychologist with this in mind, actually, and got diverted into studying cognition more generally for decades, but always had in mind this idea that if we could understand how people think and how they have emotional responses, if we can understand that, we're going to be in a better position to be able to convey information in the ways that they'll not only understand, but take to heart, that is, act on. So do you mind just walking me through how a high school student comes into thinking about this kind of stuff? I mean, was it a teacher? Was it an experience you had as a student that made you feel like your educational experience could have been better? It, it was partly that sort of thing, but it was also the 60s. I mean, this is just kind of, you know, it was in the water, it was in the air, this idea of social change and trying to make things better. So it was just my particular take on observing how ineffective the high school experience, at least that I had, was, and just thinking about how it could be better, that led me to start really thinking about this. It wasn't any particular teacher or anything like that. It was it was really kind of, I suspect, more a sign of the times than any particularly great insights that I personally had. Now, we've obviously come a long way since the 60s in terms of how we've learned. So in terms of active learning, do you feel like there are principles that are misunderstood or misguided in terms of how they're carried out? Yeah, so I think a lot of people that I've talked to think of active learning as learning by doing, which leads them to think that just having an unstructured discussion is going to be active learning or this so-called discovery learning where you let people muck around, hope they'll get something out of it, that that's active learning. I think a better way to look at it is learning by using. That is, you need to have a learning objective, some particular goal in mind, which which you want the students to learn. And on the basis of that learning objective, tell them or convey to them some information that would allow them to achieve it. But more than that, have them use that information in some way. That is, might use it in a debate or role play or problem solving. Something where they develop some kind of a work product that you can then evaluate and see if, in fact, they were able to use the information you conveyed in a way that'll help them achieve their learning outcome. 
So with active learning defined that way, I'm just thinking of classically how people are taught. So, you know, they go to a classroom, they may be taking in a lecture or video, and, and then they have to answer some questions. Is answering a question enough to constitute a work product, or, or is that not how you tend to think of the application of what is learned? So I think it depends on what the question is. If, if the question were just asking them to repeat back something they were told, sort of answer by rote, I think it's fairly useless. But if the question had some subtlety and involved having to think through the information and see how it could be applied in some way, then I think answering a question could very well be an instance of active learning. That's interesting because, you know, the way medicine is taught oftentimes is rote memorization, right, and recall. So that's fascinating that you're defining it that way as needing to be more robust than that. Am I interpreting that right? Yep. So with that said, do you mind giving me a broad overview of active learning science, what you all do, and how you help resolve some of these problems that come up for students and teachers? Sure. So the first thing is that we take a step back and ask what the goal is, what the point is. What is it we want students to learn? So that's where the learning objectives come in. And learning objectives are not the same thing as topics. So a topic, you know, it's kind of like a heading in a book or something. A learning objective has a verb at the beginning, typically, like analyze or identify or synthesize, whatever, so that you can actually measure whether they achieved it or not. So that's a crucial first step in any kind of active learning. And then this, the second piece is, I think, when you design an active learning exercise, you should be drawing on the science of learning. So an absolutely enormous amount is now known memory, how you acquire information, organize it, store it, use it in various ways, and so on. And that information has pretty much stayed in technical journals and textbooks. It's not systematically been used widely in education, and it can be. So I've been co-author of four textbooks, which have led me to have to read a lot of this literature, not all of it by any means, I don't know anybody has, I doubt it. And I ended up distilling five principles that I summarized in a book I published last year called Active Learning Online. But the principles in there can be used for more than online. They can be used for any kind of learning. I can walk through those principles if you like. Yeah, no, please do. I think that'd be great. Okay. So they fall into two big categories. The first one is pay attention and think it through. So let me ask you a question, if I may. At the end of the day, when you're laying in bed, can you reflect back on the events of the day and sort of remember what happened? Yeah, I can. Okay, so here's the real question I want to ask. What percentage of what you recall at the end of the day do you think at the time it was happening during the day, you intentionally tried to memorize it so you'd be able to recall it later on? Was it 50%, do you think? Oh, far less. Uh, intentionally memorizing? I mean, maybe 1%, probably zero? Okay. I've asked thousands of people this, literally in big, large groups where I ask them to raise their hands and so on. The modal number is about 5%. So think about this for a second. That implies that 95%, roughly, say, of what you recall, you didn't try to learn at the time it was happening. This is a well-documented phenomenon. It's called incidental memory. So there's a distinction between incidental and intentional memory, which is 
incidental is by far the majority of what we remember. So why? How's that happen? Well, it turns out that the more you focus on something and pay attention to it, the more likely it is you remember it, even if you don't want to. That a lot of memory is a byproduct of processing it. So the first principle, maybe the most important, I call deep processing, that you need to focus on what's important because what you're focused on, what you think through, pay attention to is what you're likely to remember later on. So principle of deep processing, really fundamental. It's one of these pay attention and think it through. Another one is called deliberate practice, which you may have heard of. Are you a musician by any chance? I'm not. No, I do play sports though. Okay. So what do you, what sports do you play? Well, I like to play basketball and badminton. Okay. So I don't know anything about badminton, but have you ever had a coach? I have. Yes. So what a coach will do is spot the things that you need to drill deep on to do better. So this works for sports like, you know, golf is a good example. Tennis, another one. We have a coach, but it also works for things like language learning, many, many things. I taught for a year in France. So when I was learning French, I had a tutor. I'd say a word and she'd listen really carefully and then say it back, but emphasize the part that I got wrong, whether it was a rolling R, a particular U, vowel sounds, whatever. The point is that deliberate practice is not just doing it over and over again. It's not just practice. It's identifying the hard spots where it's difficult for you and disproportionately allocating your attention to that. So deliberate practice is really important. You need to focus on what's hard, not just do the whole thing over and over again. And a third principle in this general category of pay attention and think it through is dual coding. So it turns out if you give somebody the name of something or description and you show them a picture, they're going to remember way better than either showing the picture alone or the description alone. That is having two different modalities, the visual and the verbal, two different kinds of memory are actually set up. So it enhances your memory. So deep processing, deliberate practice, dual coding. Those are all examples of the more general pay attention and think it through category. The other two examples are completely different. They're about creating connections. So one of them is about chunking. That is, we can only hold in memory maybe three or four big organized units, but each of those can be organized into smaller units. Usually I, when I do this, I give a visual demo, but there's a great study that was done where they brought in a undergraduate as a case study. One student, three times a week on average for a year and a half. And what they did is they read random digits to this guy, one per second. They started with a single digit and they asked him to repeat it back which he could do. Then they gave him two random digits, beat him back. He could do it. End of that first session was seven. Okay. Year and a half later, you know how many he could recall? What's your guess? A year and a half of doing this. Gosh, I would say that he could do, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say 14, double what he ended with. 79. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that impressive? Random digits. One second. That's incredible. It is incredible. So this was done by Anders Ericsson and Bill Chase and Steve Falloon. It was published in Science Magazine years ago. So here's what he did. He turned out to be a long-distance runner. And he knew the amount of time it took him for different segments of different races. So when he heard digits, like four digits, he'd convert those into a time for a particular segment of a race. 
and you build up a kind of mental structure of a fictional race that had these different segments put together. So by doing that, he was able to chunk, to organize things into sets of four, three or four, and then each of those could be organized in sets of three or four and so on. So by the end of this thing, he'd come up with these techniques for doing this, that it just was stunning. And then they tested him on letters at the very end. You know how many letters he could recall? Random letters read one every second. <laughs> I'm scared to guess. I mean, if, if you did 79 on the numbers, I, I'm not sure. Seven. Seven? Just like the first day with the digits. Wow. Yep. The strategy only worked for digits because it was about running times, about numbers. So it's about forming connections, chunking, but drawing on what you know, okay, that's relevant. So chunking is really important. It's a bottleneck. We can only hold three or four of these chunks, but each of them can have chunks within them. The final principle, it's about associations. So I just drew on that, that he was using his associations to races to help him chunk. But you can use associations not only to help you organize the information, but also to help you store it. So for example, when I meet a new person, I'm terrible with names. So what I've discovered is if I look at them and I look for features that are similar to somebody else who has the same name, some other John I know or Sheila or something, I mentally encode, oh yeah, those eyebrows, Sheila. Oh yeah, that nose, whatever. And then later when I see them, I scan their face and it triggers the associations. It reminded of the other person I know who has those features in common. I remember their name. So I've integrated what is new, this new person's face, to what I already knew. And then the last thing about association is you can use them to help you retrieve information, to jar your memory. So I could tell you a lot more about that, but I've been talking too long already. So, but you can see, I think, that the science of learning has done hundreds and hundreds of studies. Each of these things I'm talking about, there are many studies that document them. They're not just anecdotes. They're, they're really laboratory studies that have been done that have led to these five principles that pretty much cover the main things that I think are applicable. And those can be used really quite easily in classroom settings, and they're often not. I guess one thing that strikes me is that some of these techniques you're describing are things that I could do myself, right? But one, you know, the deliberate practice you called out is requiring the help of a skilled coach to point out areas of weakness to work on disproportionately. So I guess my question is, in our current educational system, do you feel that the teacher-student ratios in classrooms, let's say one teacher for about 20 students or 30 students or whatever, does that lend itself to allowing the sort of deliberate practice or coaching? Or do we need to fundamentally think of learning differently, like an apprenticeship model where maybe it's one-to-one or something like that? That's a great question. So one of the things that I've worried about a lot is how to scale. There's a distinction between growth and scaling. So growth is, you know, we have more and more students, but we'd have to have more and more tutors. So that's not so great. Scaling is we're going to be, we have the resources grow way, way slower resources we need than the number of students. So scaling is what we want. We want efficiency and efficacy. So take deliberate practice. It turns out there are techniques for every one of those principles where you can get them where you don't need to grow the number of faculty or resources. So let's take that one in particular. Benjamin Franklin, who was in some ways, in many ways actually, arguably America's greatest scientist, decided he wanted to learn to write. So what he did is he would read a newspaper where sometimes there were columns that were written by people who were very good writers. So he would pick one 
that he was impressed by. And then a couple of days later, write it down in his own words, paraphrasing it. And then he would compare what he had written to the original and notice the differences. So he was able to identify himself where the rough spots were, where the weaknesses were that he needed to drill down on. Similarly, uh, Winston Churchill, before he gave a big speech, he'd give it to himself in the mirror. So he'd get direct feedback about how he looked and how it sounded, which allowed him to identify the rough spots on his own and to correct them. Similarly, if you have a clear learning objective, you can develop a rubric where you literally tell students what they should be doing to, in order to do it you know, not so well, a little better, better still, and really good, say. You can develop objective criteria as long as you know what it is you're trying to achieve. That is where the, that's where the learning objective comes in. What we've done is we've had students produce a work product, like say they're learning to write effective memos. And then we have groups of them, pairs say, will work on this. They get a lecture, information transmission, and then they go into active learning where they actually have to use the information to, in this case, develop a memo to justify uh, why a speaker series would be a good idea or something to give them a topic to do it on. And then what we do is we have pairs come together and use a rubric that has the characteristics of a good memo, you know, concise, to the point, all of the relevant information, none of the no irrelevant, whatever. I mean, we have a list of characteristics and they essentially give each other formative feedback. And this can be scaled massively. And the very act of using the rubric is itself part of the learning experience. So yeah, deliberate practice, you can do it on your own, uh, identifying where your own rough spots are. I do that all the time when I'm playing music. It's not subtle where I'm having trouble. I can figure that out pretty quickly. You can also use objective criteria that somebody really knows what the end goal ought to look like, has created, and use that to help identify where the rough spots are and correct them. Has research ever been done comparing near-peer practice, which is kind of what you're describing with expert-guided deliberate practice? And if so, what are the comparisons of these two types of practice? That's a really good question. I do not know of any such study, but I do know that the techniques I just described will, in fact, allow students to learn material because we've, we've used them at Foundry College and they, they really do work. And actually, students like doing them. But we've not done the kind of comparison, which I think is a really good question. But I would look at two things. I'd look at both the speed and efficacy. If it turns out it takes a little longer, I can live with that. But if it turns out that it's not as good, that's something we've got to consider what to do about. But to my knowledge, I'm not aware of any direct study of this. If anybody out there who's listening to this and knows of one, please send me an email. I'd love to read it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you kind of segued into my next big question, which is, tell me more about Foundry College. What you're describing is fascinating and obviously has wide-ranging impact in terms of how we better teach and learn. What are you all doing and how's it going? Yeah, so Foundry College sort of came out of Minerva, which is the first thing I did. I was the founding dean there, the first academic faculty member that they hired, and I ended up being an architect for the curriculum. And that is a fantastic, absolutely fantastic curriculum, but it's really, quote unquote, elite, very difficult. They take less than 1.5% of the applicants. I mean, it's really hard to get into it. It's wonderful for those students. So after five and a half years there, I left to do sort of the anti-Minerva, which was for working adults 
where virtually anybody can get in as long as you're serious about it. And the goal was instead of a liberal arts education to teach skills and knowledge that would not be easily automated. So the idea was to help them get jobs that would not be automated out of existence in a few years. So we had some analyses that underlie what sorts of jobs we have in mind, but that's what we did. So part of what Foundry College was about was an insight I got listening to a friend of mine talk about a nonprofit here in New York, in the Bronx, where they work with high school dropouts and teach them to fix cell phones. I said, well, cell phones change all the time. What happens? And you know what happens after three years or so, these students, they lose their jobs because they were taught narrowly and vocationally, very brittle, how to fix this particular model, what to do, here are the steps. What they needed was a broader foundation in more general problem solving skills, critical thinking skills, and so forth. So that's what Foundry College is about. So Foundry College gives students a foundation in very broad general skills. And then on top of that, puts courses on things like project management and entry level Salesforce administrator, things like that, that will get them a good job. And in fact, they earn a third party certificate, not ours. They actually get it through Salesforce, their own certificate. We train them up, but we don't just narrowly train them on getting that job. We give them a foundation that'll help them adapt and evolve as the world changes. So you're helping this cohort in their college years. I'm just curious, is there a sort of foundry K through 12 equivalent or is there a curriculum that you think folks ought to be thinking about to get their kids ready for jobs that aren't so brittle and vocational like you're saying? Yeah. So Foundry is mostly focused on working adults. So there are a few in there who relatively recent from high school, but that's not really the group that it's designed for. In terms of high school, I think a lot of what those foundational courses are at Foundry could just as easily be taught in high school. So critical thinking, for example, is one of them. So critical thinking turns out not to be one thing. I've identified seven different forms of critical thinking, which have almost nothing to do with each other. When you evaluate whether you should believe an argument, the steps you go for that are really different than what you do when you weigh a decision. You know, should you do this versus that? You look at the trade-offs. And that's really different than whether you should believe a source. You know, what's their agenda and and so forth. So critical thinking could easily be a year-long course in high school. And the trick is to break it down its components and give them enough experience with different contexts so they can actually generalize. That the single greatest problem, the hardest problem in the science of learning is the problem of transfer. That is, you know, they say, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but I'll tell you the educational equivalent, which is what happens in class stays in class is definitely bad. That is, they don't transfer it out. They learn it as a kind of academic thing. They're going to do well on a test. They don't use it. It's typical. So in order to get people to use it, they have to have a lot of experience in different contexts. and It's got to become more automatic. So yeah, a year-long course in critical thinking will be easy. A year-long course in problem solving. A year-long course in decision making. There are many different models and heuristics that people can look at in terms of weighing alternatives. All these kinds of things. There's no reason you can't teach them in high school. So as a final question, a lot of our audience are early career health students or professionals 
Any thoughts on things they should consider as they go out into the world and chart their path? Well, an obvious thing is that the world is just constantly changing and evolving. So you've got to have a mindset that you're going to have to be learning all the time. So learning is not fun for many people. And so to the extent that you can figure out heuristics and methods and techniques that you personally are comfortable with it that make learning relatively easy, like constructing narratives and scenarios where something would be relevant, it's one thing I do, that's going to be good. It's going to be better because you're really going to have to keep learning. That's the way the world is shaping up. Well, I think that's a really good place to end. I mean, gosh, I'm really grateful for your insights and my mind is blown about what is possible when you sort of chunk out information like you were saying. I'm going to ponder that for a long time. Thank you for sharing your ideas with me. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Well, I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>